Two things stood out to me from Thursday's funeral for celebrated congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis. One was the extensive number of scripture references that were made by the various speakers. Individually and collectively, those who knew John Lewis well knew his faith was integral to his life work. Secondly was the recognition that his faith was forged in the face of difficult times, forceful opposition, and personal sacrifice. Former President Barack Obama began his eulogy by quoting the opening chapter of the book of James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Obama then referred to John Lewis as an American whose faith was tested again and again to produce a man of pure joy and unbreakable perseverance. It is this dynamic and quality of faith formed in a time of crisis like the one we're living in now with an unyielding health pandemic, a serious economic depression, and a national uprising calling for long overdue racial equity and justice, which has led us pastors to present for the next six week, a sermon series on lessons from the book of Daniel. We're talking about the kind of faith that enables us to live at the edge where our steps may be cautious and our heads bowed low but our trusting God producing in us a new level of strength and perseverance. The setting to the book of Daniel is one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Jerusalem, capital of the southern kingdom, has fallen, and with it its center of worship, the temple, has been plundered. And the nation's royal family and nobility have been taken into captivity. In the story we're about to hear, Babylon's King Nebuchadnezzar has given instructions for his palace official to select promising young leaders of Judah who could be trained for future service in his government. If we listen to this story with detached ears, we may not register the severity of their situation and conclude that these young men are being treated rather well and have perhaps been given an opportunity that some would envy. But if we listen with the ears of a person of Jewish faith, we will recognize the severity and sadness of their situation. It is a time of defeat, oppression, and despair. The experience of those who've been taken into exile is reflected in the words from Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We know little about the central figure of Daniel and his friends, except that they've been taken from their home to a foreign land. They've been taken from what is familiar to them to what is very unfamiliar. From freedom of choice to a life of conscripted service, from confidence in their God to a time of spiritual confusion and uncertainty. Yet in this story, we will hear how faith is forged during a time of testing. 
Let us give our attention to the reading of God's Word by Steve Frary. Today's reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 21. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names, to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to, to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, 
he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word. Amen. Judah, like Israel to the north more than a century before, has been defeated, and the temple has been robbed of some of its sacred vessels. More than just a military defeat, this conquest and subsequent exile threaten the heart of Israel's faith. The taking of these items from the house of God, emblems of the divine presence of God in Israel's midst, and bringing them to Babylon to be placed in the house of Nebuchadnezzar's God underscores the theological crisis of this event. Under these circumstances, how were the people of God to understand God's will and God's exercise of power in the world? The exile displaced God's people into an entirely alien culture, surrounded by foreign people whose system of government and form of religion was altogether different than their own. Like the coronavirus of our day, the exile affected everyone and everything. It was a time of spiritual disorientation. Although the prophets had given plenty of warning and spoke of such a consequence to the spiritual obstinance and indifference of God's people, with this exile, they nevertheless grieved their loss of identity, freedom, and hope for the future. This is the backdrop, mood, and tone for our introduction to the book of Daniel. The king told the head of the palace, Ashpenaz, to select among Israel's royal and noble families, young men who were healthy and handsome, intelligent and well-educated, good prospects for leadership positions in his palace. He was to supervise their training and assimilation into the Babylonian language and culture. Even the food they were to eat was to be the same food served to the king. After three years of their training, they would be presented to the king who would then determine their role among his court positions. Daniel and three other young men were among those selected, and in every way they seemed to accept their predicament with a willingness to be acculturated in every way except one. Daniel draws a line when it came to being served the royal food and wine. We're told by the narrator that God had given Daniel favor in the eyes of Ashpenaz, head of the palace. So it was natural for Daniel to ask permission to be exempt from eating the king's food. But Ashpenaz declined his request out of fear of going against the king's orders. So Daniel tried another route. He convinces the steward whom Ashpenaz has assigned to Daniel and his companions to follow a 10-day trial. The steward agreed to feed them only vegetables and water for that period. And then at the end of 10 days, he confirmed that the four young men looked better and more robust than all the others who had eaten the king's fare. So he continued to serve them their preferred diet. The narrator tells us that God gave these four young men knowledge and skill in both books 
and life. In addition, Daniel was gifted in understanding all sorts of visions and dreams, which we will see as a major um, significant contributor to the rest of the story in this book. At the end of their training, they're presented to the king who interviews them and found them to be far superior to all the others in training. None were a match for Daniel and his companions. So they took their place in the king's court. And whenever the king consulted them on anything, on books or on life, he found them to be ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his kingdom put together. Well, what can we learn from this example of faith in a time of crisis? This narrative setting to tell the stories of individuals who are trying to live out their convictions in a world dominated by those who do not share their faith. I have three observations. First is that God's will is being worked out amid the ambiguity of human history even when the experience of displacement and oppression obscures that will. From the outset, God's sovereignty as the Lord of history is being asserted. Judah's defeat and the exile forced by Babylon's ruler is not the result of might, but the result of the Lord delivering Judah's king into enemy hands. This and two other times we hear the narrator tell us that God is working to accomplish his purposes. God caused the palace official to show Daniel favor and compassion. In Hebrew, these words could be translated as showing grace and mercy. And thirdly, God gave Daniel and his friends knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. The God who brought about the exile is the very same one who enables Daniel and his friends not only to survive, but even thrive in a hostile environment. Even as God carries out judgment against his people, God gives grace to them to be sustained through such an experience. The foundation of faith is not in the faithful and inspiring acts of Israel's most celebrated heroes, but in the faithful demonstration of God's will and power and grace at work in human history. This story is reminiscent with the story of Joseph, who had been sold by his brothers into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt, a foreign land. There, considered handsome and desirable by Potiphar's wife, he resists her advances and is thrown into prison. God extends grace to Joseph in the form of favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Gifted by God, he eventually interprets Pharaoh's dream and is given a position of high rank in Pharaoh's court. As with the Joseph story, so in the story of Daniel, God's will is being worked out even amid adverse circumstances. In the midst of our own crisis, it's important for us to remember that God is sovereign and in control of everything. Despite the ambiguity and uncertainty of our present circumstances, we know from past history that God's purpose is, is unfolding. 
the God who created us and who redeems us is also the one who sustains us. The second observation I would make is that the training and education of Daniel and his friends in Babylonian culture would have included the study and polytheistic literature in which magic, sorcery, charms, and astrology were prominent subjects. But it's not this re-education or their new names, which in some cases included a link to pagan gods, to which Daniel objects. But it's the food they were being served from the royal table. Daniel implies that its consumption, its consumption would defile them. We're not told why. We're not told whether it was the food, that the food might have been presented as an act of idol worship before it was served to them, or if it included meats banned by Israel's Levitical food laws, foods such as pork, which is considered unclean, or if the consumption of the king's food was viewed as the equivalent to receiving gifts in exchange for the king's support and allegiance. Whatever the reason, Daniel and his friends draw the line here and refuse to compromise. Even when Ashpenaz refuses to grant permission for his plan of vegetable substitute, Daniel finds another way. Again, we can trace God's involvement granting Daniel and his friends not only physical health, but the gift of intellectual capacity along with Daniel's particular gift of understanding visions and dreams. In a land where such skills were expected of the learned and the wise, our narrator makes it clear that Daniel's source of knowledge and discernment of what is true comes from God. More than their own intellectual study or acquired skill, their success was the result of relying on God and God's gift to them. Immersed in an alien culture and religious environment hostile to their own faith, these men found a way to express their allegiance and loyalty to God. Their refusal to eat the king's food was for them a statement of their identity as to who they were. They accepted their situation, but made the most of their opportunities to honor and serve the Lord and with the assurance that God will look after them. There are some Christians in the midst of this coronavirus who want to make a statement of their identity to the world by choosing to gather for worship, even in violation of the state health order not to do so. They claim it is their religious right and as a necessity for the practice of their faith. I would argue otherwise. I think their ability to persevere has worn thin, and they're in need of shared experiences of faith expressions in order to feel supported and sustained. But there are other far more effective ways to demonstrate faith more consistent with the gospel message. Granted, participating in online worship is not the same as being together for in-person worship. However, if by doing so, we are nourished in our faith and at the same time we can show Christ's love and care for the safety and well-being of others, 
by not contributing to the possible spread of the virus, then let us continue to sacrifice our wants and desires for the sake of advancing God's love in this world. And finally, my third observation is that the book of Daniel is one of the more peculiar books of the Bible. It contains two distinct sections. Part one, chapters one through six, is a collection of faith stories told by a narrator in the third person. And then part two, chapters seven through 12, is a collection of dreams and visions told in first person. The text we're gonna be preaching on, with one exception, will be from the first part of this book, with its portrayal of people in need of God's deliverance. We will connect this theme with the second part, which offers the promise of a future deliverer. As we will see, God is present with and delivers Daniel and others in their time of need. This intervention of God also serves as a foretaste of future deliverance and our hope for it. This view of history and God's acts within it introduces the reader to an already and not yet way of framing our faith experience, much like the way we speak of the reality of the presence of the kingdom of God. Already we know God's rule is present in this world, initiated with the coming of Christ. Yet we also know it has not yet been fully revealed until the return of Christ. Already we have been been delivered from sin and have received the benefits of God's presence through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But our world does not yet know the meaning of heaven come to earth. Thus, we live at the edge. We straddle this already and not yet reality, this tension of faith in the power and promise of God as our deliverer. This tension of faith is reflected even in the words we recite over the Lord's Supper. When Jesus um, shared his last supper with the disciples and interpreted the Passover elements in terms of his own body and blood being given in sacrifice for them, given as his life for them, he said he would not eat again of this meal until it fulfilled the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul also said that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's saving death until he comes. We already know the meaning and significance of Christ's death on the cross and the power of his resurrection to give new life. And we wait with anticipation the return of Christ in glory to fulfill the kingdom come. Until then, we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Amen.